0: Nearly the end of the course now. Uh, Last couple commandments we're running through. Today we are going to try and do something big and go through two commandments and cover both theft, the seventh commandment, and lying, which is the eighth. Now, people often don't... So within the concept of theft, there has to be a concept of ownership and property. So that's kind of the key thing I want you to take away from today's lecture, um, that you might have read those lines in the Catechism. What do they actually mean and make sense of? This is going to connect with our last lecture on environmental ethics. So there's a reason I went through them in the sequence we've done. We noted, yes, two days ago, how many days ago, when we looked at the environment that God gave the earth to everyone in giving it to Adam and Eve, whatever name we give to our first parents. So that there is a gift of the goods of the world to all humanity. The wheat fields of the Ukraine, the savannas of Africa, the um, minerals of wherever, um, these are given by the Lord to all of humanity. But if it's given to everyone, it's kind of given to no one. So how do you particularize, make real that gift? This is what, in the church's vision, private ownership means. So it's given to all humanity, but that's mediated to Bob and Jane and Harry and Joe um, and my friend Betty. Yeah, so all of these. Um, private ownership is how the things that are given to all humanity, how that gets mediated. Um, But one of the things in the catechism, consistent in the teaching of the church, is there is an ultimate goal to that, what's called a preferential love for the poor. So whether we look to the Old Testament, whether we look to our Lord's concerns in the gospel, the poor have a special place. So the rich man with his private ownership has to remember that there is a primordial gift of everything to all of humanity. So mapping this out here in a different color. The universal destination of human goods. The the destination, where is it all given ultimately? Universally to all of humanity. That is the primordial reality in the vision of the church. And in order to make that real, that gets mediated through the real but non-absolute right to private ownership. So the poor man at your gate can rightly say that the riches you have in your castle Um, are not, you don't own absolutely. That you have a, not just an act of generosity you should give to him, but actually you should, in his need, render to him an effective realization of the universal destination of those goods. To repeat the phrase I just used, a preferential love for the poor. That outline is what we're gonna try and articulate about what lies behind, um, theologically, the seventh commandment about theft. Now to understand lying, the eighth commandment, we need to understand what speech is about. So we're going to look at the definition of speech, What is speech about? It is to communicate truth. Speech is, using St. Thomas's definition, statements in accord with the mind. Speech communicates truth, statements in accord with the mind. And in contrast, lying, what is lying, a statement at variance with the mind. That's St. Thomas's definition. The Catechism notes clarification to lead someone to error. Lying is a statement at variance with the mind, according to St. Thomas, to lead someone to error, according to the Catechism. So your intention in speaking a falsehood is part of what makes it a lie. That's what makes a lie different from a mistake, that you intend to lead someone to error. Okay, so let's turn to the lecture notes starting on page one where I've got two kind of summary points so what is the seventh commandment it is thou shalt not steal what does that commandment cover the universal destination of human goods the concept of property the concept of private ownership and the social doctrine of the church so all of these are within that part of the catechism Michael can you read that Quote from the Catechism for us.
1: The seventh commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping the goods of one's neighbor and wronging him in any way with respect to his goods. It commands justice and charity in the care of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. For the sake of the common good, it requires respect for the universal destination of goods and respect for the right to private property. Christian life strives to order this world's goods to God and to fraternal charity.
0: Okay, and then very briefly, the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So say that that commandment encompasses everything that is to do with truth and communication. Adam, can you read that quote for us?
2: The Eighth Commandment forbids misrepresenting the truth in our relations with others. This moral prescription flows from the vocation of the holy people to bear witness to their God, who is the truth and wills the truth. Offenses against the truth expressed by word or deed or refusal to commit oneself to moral uprightness. They are fundamental infidelities to God. And in this sense, they undermine the foundations of the government.
0: That was my phone, yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Okay, so, um, it's not that funny. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted a tone that was going to be obviously mine that when I'd hear it in the room, I wouldn't think, is that someone else getting a text message? No, that's me getting a text message. Or Captain Kirk. Or or, or Captain Kirk. Okay, page two. Let's get a bit more specific here in terms of what's meant here. So page two, I'm trying to articulate what the church's understanding of property is. Uh, And what I'm hoping to communicate to you is something different from the understanding of property you had when you arrived. Our typical Anglo-Saxon view of property is, um, this is mine and you can't have it. I worked for this, this is mine. And you have no right to it. Thus phrases like taxation is theft. Um, Property is seen as a total absolute thing. That isn't the church's view of property. So we're not communists in that we do believe in private ownership and believe that private ownership is essential for the functioning and flourishing of human beings. But private ownership is a relative thing, not an absolute thing. Okay, on my notes here. So, at the top of the page, property, I say two key principles. First, to repeat again, there's a universal destination of human goods, and this is primary before we think about anything else. But second, there is a right to private property, but this right is not absolute. Now, let's read through these paragraphs here in turn. Josh, you first, please.
3: In the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, Master them by labor and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. However, the earth is divided up among men to assure the security of their lives, endangered by poverty and threatened by violence. The appropriation of property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of persons and for helping each of them to meet his basic needs and the needs of those in his charge. It should allow for a natural solidarity to develop between men.
0: Francisco, can you read the next?
4: The right to private property acquires or or receive in a just way does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of mankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial, even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its existence. Exercise.
0: Okay, let's skip down a minute before we read those other ones. What St. Thomas says because I think this articulates it well, as he so often does. So St. Thomas, he says, said, said, argues for the appropriateness of private property. So article one of that question, he says, possession is natural to man because his reason and his will just give him dominion over things. That's Aristotle's argument. Second article, he goes on, he said, to procure and dispense Private ownership is better than everything being owned by the community because man is more careful to procure what is for himself, whereas a man is more likely to shirk from work if the fruits of his labor are only for the common good. Human affairs are more orderly if each takes charge of a particular thing himself as when he owns a thing. And he says quarrels arise when there's no division of things possessed. But he says, concerning the use of external things, private ownership is limited in that man ought to possess things not just as his own, but as common in that he is ready to communicate them to those in need. So let's think, uh, so St. Thomas was a religious, he lived in community. I think his community living and structure, a bit like I was here in the seminary, we kind of see obviously here, if everyone is in charge of the grounds what happens? Nobody takes charge of the grounds. If everybody is in charge of cleaning the toilets, do the toilets ever get cleaned? In a house of sixty men? No. So, So how do we get things done things are parceled out, for the functioning of the community, the common good of the community, you are in charge of this, you are in charge of that, ownership is a way of that being the case. Whereas if everything is owned by everyone, just no one takes care of anything. So I think we see a vision here of St. Thomas's experience of community life being Articulates in how he's describing what private property achieves for the common good.
5: It would seem to me then that private property is an, a result of the fall, then, in some sense, it, which I don't entirely want to think. Like I, I like. The
0: The fall makes private ownership even more essential. Uh, You'd be right there. Because there's so many things that are philosophically, uh, if we use the word contingent, that they're not required to to be this way and not that way. There needs to be some division, decision. So that's part of why you need a government for a community. Is the road going to go here or is it going to go there? That's not just a matter of sin that you need a decision. The group needs someone to make that decision because it's not it's not a truth of, um, certainly not a self-evident truth of reason. It's not a truth that has only one possible conclusion from reason to say the road's gonna go here and not there. Because there's some benefits putting it here and some losses, some benefits here and some losses. Um, so I don't think it's only because of the fall. If it wasn't for the fall then the ultimate um, rendering, so I own this thing and I, in that sense I'm a steward of it and manage it but with an awareness of those others who are also to benefit from it Um, my awareness, generosity thoughtfulness of others would just flow much more easily if it wasn't for sin in my own heart how does that yeah
6: is this the same as the economic term like the tragedy of the commons
0: I'm not an economist so the economic term tragedy of the Commons. Commons. So like
6: things that are held in common aren't taken care of, so it's best for someone to take responsibility for those things, whether it's through ownership or...
0: That sounds like the same argument, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, people like Mussolini come along and say, for the sake of the common good, I'm going to. um, So there's, yeah, I, I don't know what was the initial intent in that rendering of it, but it sounds like it's the same principle. How does that then define theft? So theft, I'm quoting the Catechism's definition. Theft is the usurpation of another's goods against the reasonable will of the owner. I think I've already given you that definition earlier in the course, but every word in there matters. So I say a reasonable owner, so the reasonable will, not just the will of the owner. So our Anglo-Saxon vision says, um, I, Brother Adam owns this bottle. If anybody else takes it, and he doesn't want them to, that's theft. That isn't the definition of the catechism. His reasonable will. So if someone is dying of thirst over here, and he says, it's my water bottle, you can't have it. Um, that's against his will, but it's not against his reasonable will. Because his reasonable will, if he's dying of thirst, would be to give him something to drink. A reasonable person would do that. So the definition of theft, the usurpation of another's goods against the reasonable will of the owner. So, what do I say there? For example, a reasonable owner would give food to a starving person. Thus, a starving person can take food that does not belong to him because goods, like food, exist for all humanity as their universal destination. And I quote St. Thomas, in cases of need, all things are common property, so that there would seem to be no sin in taking another's property, for need has made it common. So the primordial reality, universal destination of human goods, mediated through private ownership, which is a real thing. But in cases of need, that primordial destination kicks back in, and the starving person isn't thieving when they take what, in case of need, belongs to them. But it has to be in case of need, not in case of convenience. That if he's thirsty, just you know, I'm feeling a little, bit of, little thirsty in my throat. That doesn't give him a right to take his water bottle. If he's dying of thirst, need does render it so
4: And that's given the the, the situation that you have no other choice other than to take.
0: Yeah, you it's mean.
4: It's like if i if I if my kids are starving, I'm gonna go steal, or I can go to a food
0: bank. Right, right. Yeah, so this. in most scenarios, there are multiple options available. So we've got a glimpse here of the concepts of what property means, why we're not communist, but private property isn't an absolute thing. Whereas in the communist vision, the state owns everything for the sake of the people. The state owns everything. And you don't really own anything. That isn't the church's vision. Page three. The love for the poor. So I say the catechism, point one, the catechism is a whole section on a love for the poor in its treatment of the third commandment. Uh, Again, where would the love of the poor be in the Catechism? You might think, well, where would you put that? In the question within theft about property because that's where property ultimately is aiming. So in the context of considering property and ownership, Catechism says, love for the poor is incompatible with immoderate love of riches or their selfish use. So we're all called to love our neighbor, we're all called, if we follow the example of the Lord, the continual message of the Old Testament to have a particular concern for those most in need. the Old Testament refrain, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. The stranger, the widow, the orphan. Um, That's not compatible if your heart has an immoderate attachment to riches. At point three I say Marxist-inspired liberation theology as it was called, called for a preferential option for the poor, which is a different word to preferential love, preferential option for the poor. Um, so that was big in the 80s and 90s. Um, when I was a seminarian it was still a very fashionable thing. There were various statements from the CDF clarifying that well if by that phrase you mean this that's okay, if by this phrase you mean that Marxist inspired then that's just not compatible with authentic human dignity Um, so the church documents instead use this phrase of preferential love for the poor preferential love in both spiritual and material forms Uh, Eric can you read that block quote from us so this is from the CDF in that Liberation Theology Era, but quoted in the Catechism.
7: In its various forms, material deprivation, unjust oppression, physical and psychological illness and death, human misery is the obvious sign of the inherited condition of frailty and need for salvation, in which man finds himself as consequence of original sin. This misery elicited the compassion of Christ, the Saviour, willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the Church, which, since her origin and in spite of the failings of many of her members, has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation through numerous works of charity, which remain indispensable always and everywhere.
0: So I say next, liberation theology has been critiqued and clarified uh, by many magisterial statements. Then quote Trentismus Annus. So this was in the encyclical of John Paul II that came out just after the Berlin Wall fell, the collapse of communism. Um, It seemed as if communism was kind of gone for good. Now we know in the West, in our colleges, our universities, intellectually, it's dominant in many places. What did he say at that stage, when it seemed that communism was over? It seemed when it had you know, half a century to, in many, many countries, test itself out, tested and failed. Adam, can you read that for us?
2: In the recent past, the sincere desire to be on the side of the oppressed and not to be cut off from the course of history has led many believers to seek in various ways an impossible compromise between Marxism and Christianity. Moving beyond all that was short-lived in these attempts, present circumstances are leading to a reaffirmation of the positive value of an authentic theology of integral human liberation. Considered from this point of view the events of 1989, the fall of communism, and the East turn to Western democratic capitalism are proving to be important also for the countries of the third world, which are searching for their own path to development, just as they were important for the countries of Central and Eastern Europe.
0: Um, and this isn't a whole course on social teaching, but so next, we're not going to read through that quote, but consistent in the development of the church's social teaching, repeated condemnations of socialism while campaigning um, for rights for the worker, concerns for the poor, uh, but with an authentic vision of the dignity of the person, not just of the collective. That's what sets us apart from the communist vision. Comments thus far? Have you heard of the phrase liberation theology?
4: It's huge in Latin America.
0: Still in some places, yes, yes. Um.
8: Can you give a brief outline or kind of, I don't really understand what it is and just know what I've heard of it.
0: Yeah, liberation theology is a big thing to try and summarize in a couple of sentences. Liberation, it has its as its focus uh, a, a liberation, but rather than being a spiritual liberation from sin, liberation from the tyranny, the oppression of economic systems, particularly of capitalism, um, So that the Marxist analysis is the dominant lens that is used to interpret Christianity. So as John Paul II said, a compromise between Marxism and Christianity. Or I'd say with liberation theology, using Marxism as your lens to understand what is Christianity. So Jesus becomes primarily about a worldly liberation not primarily about a spiritual liberation that through that achieves all kinds of material liberation. That would be a very brief outline and critique. Um, moving on. So here I am, in very summary form, trying to summarize a few points about the church's social doctrine and the economy. So my first point there, I say, the economy should serve man, not vice versa. So the critique of communism, but also of capitalism, is in both systems, man is at the service of the state in communism, or man is at the service of the capitalist economy in many forms of capitalism. Whereas the church is saying it should be the other way around, that these things should exist for no other reason than the serving of man. Michael, can you read that first quote from the Catechism?
1: The development of economic activity and growth and production are meant to provide for the needs of human beings. It is ordered, first of all, to the service of persons, of the whole man, and of the entire human community.
0: With that, where does work fit? That work is our primordial vocation in Genesis. So work was given to Adam before the fall. Work was given to Adam before there was toil and sweat associated with it. That only comes with the fall. But he was given work already, the command to till the earth, cultivate it. That was just going to be somehow an easy, happy thing. So work is a good thing. Joshua, can you read the first
3: one? Human work proceeds directly from persons created in the image of God and called to prolong the work of creation by subduing the earth, both with and for one another.
0: Brother Adam, can you read the next one? In work.
8: In work, the person exercises and fulfills in part the potential inscribed in his nature. The primordial value of labor stems from man himself, its author, and its beneficiary. Work is for man, not man for work. Everyone should be able to draw from work the means of providing for his life and that of his family and of serving the human community.
0: So a notion of work as being a thing that makes you dignified, work as being a thing that is a gift to you, work as being a thing by which you are sharing in the work of the Creator... Who has made this earth, wants it to flourish. You, in your work, are bringing everything to completion, cooperating with the the Creator. This isn't how most of humanity experiences work, as something that we have to kind of push through. It's just something tough and a burden. Uh,
4: Father, this is making the the case that the work is. uh, a promoter vocation according to Revelation. Yes. Uh, what arguments could you say that is also a promoter work under philosophical reasoning? So, this is a philosophy class,
0: as you said. Y- yeah, this isn't a philosophy class. Um, s- this is a catechism class. So, therefore, my primary resource is the catechism. That's a really clever question. Uh, that I've never given any thought to. Um, I'm sure you could construct without much difficulty uh, an argument, given that I've never given it any thought before this second, I'm just gonna refrain from trying to answer. Um,
1: Well, I mean, just looking at experience and like in psychology, man who has a job, like it's proper to like a functioning man who works rather than People who are homeless and are
0: out of work go mentally insane because they don't have work. So, so work gives you a sense of dignity. Yeah. You have dignity as a human being. Your doing work gives you that sense of dignity.
5: There's also a natural appeal to farm life, especially in like modern culture. There's just something almost romantic about the idea. Yeah. We could also make the case by that. People who are bums are
6: often ostracized as well. So, being removed from the community and community being sort of like intrinsic, an intrinsic need for the person. Mm-hmm. Is probably
0: yeah, though often, the sequencing of that in someone's life, um, someone often becomes ostracized before they end up on the street, rather than being ostracized because they're on the street.
6: Maybe not homelessness, but like someone who does not
0: Okay, work. yeah, If that's how we're phrasing it, yeah, okay, okay. All right, moving on, free enterprise. Um, So free enterprise in economic activity befits human dignity. So a bit like the thing, a man with a job has a sense of dignity. You're having freedom to do work, freedom to earn a salary, freedom to make my little business and achieve something, free enterprise goes with human dignity, is one of the things we find articulated particularly powerfully by John Paul II in Trantissimus Annus. Um, John Paul, could you read that quote for us, everyone?
5: Everyone has the right of economic initiative. Everyone should make legitimate use of his talents to contribute to the abundance that will benefit all and to harvest the just fruits of his labor.
0: Okay, so maybe looking in the other direction, you've got your free enterprise, you've made your business, you've achieved something, you own this, you've got all your workers working for you. But, I say, business owners have a duty to society and to persons as individuals. Uh, Hunter, can you read the first quote there? Those responsible.
6: Those responsible for business enterprises are responsible to society for the economic and ecological effects of their operations they have an obligation to consider the good of persons and not only the increase of profits. Profits are necessary, however. They make possible the investments that ensure the future of a business, and they guarantee employment.
0: A related concept, a just wage. What is a just wage? The Church has this phrase, a family wage. A just wage is a wage that is sufficient for the father of the household to provide for the household. Um, So part of what undermines family life today is that everyone in the West expects a standard of living that is only sustainable if both parents are working, which makes it not impossible, but more difficult for family life to flourish. Um, So Eric, can you read the just wage paragraph?
7: a just wage is the legitimate fruit of work. To refuse or withhold it, it can be grave injustice. In determining fair pay, both the needs and the contributions of each person must be taken into account. Remuneration for work should guarantee man the opportunity, the opportunity to provide a dignified livelihood for himself and his family on the material, social, cultural, and spiritual level taking into account the role and the productivity of each, the state, of the business, and the common good.
0: Okay, and who's going to make sure that happens? The common good, back to a point we've made a few times already in this course, there is this need for the state, the government, that exists for the sole purpose of fostering the common good. Um, So, the state has a responsibility to regulate activity and to direct it to the promotion of the common good. Um, So, Jake, could you read the communist among us that that quote for us?
9: The responsibility of the state, economic activity, especially the activity of a market economy, cannot be conducted in an institutional, judicial or political vacuum. On the contrary, assumes sure guarantees of individual freedom and private property, as well as a stable currency and efficient public services. Hence the principal task of the state is to guarantee this security, so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labors and thus feel encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. Another task of the state is that that of overseeing and directing the exercise of human rights in the economic sector. However, primary responsibility in this area belongs not to the state, but to the individuals and to the various groups and associations which make up society.
0: So that last line, this catechism is wanting to be clear um, that the primary duty is actually to you, the people, um, but to kind of coordinate, guarantee that the state has this role. Last point on this page, last point in this part of the, our analysis of the seventh commandment, trade unions or the rights of association for workers. So the right of association, i.e. to belong to trade unions and the right to strike are both things the catechism articulates. And I say like the right to private ownership neither of these rights are absolute. So that's why governments do sometimes and have the right to sometimes prevent strikes if the damage to the common good is gonna be um, of a certain amount. But generally speaking, workers have a right to associate, to defend their rights, um, and to, to strike if that's the only way to get themselves listened to. Okay, I know this is painfully brief, and there are lots of things in here, but that's our sketch of what's covered in the third, uh, seventh, seventh Commandment about theft in the Catechism. Lying, page five. Lying is more complicated than you might originally think. You might think, it's obvious what's a lie, uh, maybe not. So, lying, Catechism says, Quoting numerous church sources lying is an intrinsically evil act. What does that mean? It means it's always wrong. Quoting St. Thomas who also in St. Augustine every lie is a sin. Um, and I quote also the Catholic Encyclopedia article on this this is the common teaching of the church. But how are you going to define a lie? So it's agreed in the tradition, lying is always wrong. What is a lie? This is not unanimous in the tradition, how to define it. So I start with St. Thomas's definition. Lying, as defined by St. Thomas, is a statement at variance with the mind. What does that mean? I have a thought in my mind, but the words I say are in contradiction to what I'm thinking. So... I say, um, no, I'm trying to not be sarcastic here. Um, I say I didn't steal your chocolate bar when I am thinking it tasted really good. Uh, yeah, so I'm thinking the, uh, it's a statement at variance with what's in my mind. That's how St. Thomas defines a lie. Catechism has a slightly different definition. It says, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. So the intention there is specified in that definition. Why am I saying words different from my mind in order to deceive you, in order to lead you into error? Now, yes. So
8: this would be like a statement at variance with your own mind, who's the person who's telling the lie?: Yes. So yes. if you had like a psychological issue where you like forgot, you ate it, and you thought it was still there,
0: you, it wouldn't be a lie? That would be a mistake, not a lie. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you're thinking something and you say the opposite, Catechism saying, in order to lead someone into error, if you didn't, if your thought was erroneous, then your is a mistake, not a lie. So my intention to deceive, my intention to lead someone into error is part of what makes it a lie. Now why does this matter for you as a human being, relating to other human beings? So first we need to consider what is the purpose of communication. So I say lying violates the purpose of communication. Uh, If you look at the footnotes you'll see I'm quoting various articles. Um, sources beyond myself and particularly following the structure of a a moral theologian Janet Smith um, who I'm a great devotee of um, so I'm not that's why there's lots of things in quotes here so everything and every action has a purpose things have natures given them by God and to violate those natures is to do wrong that's a kind of general principle in a kind of broadly speaking Aristotelian approach to the world. The purpose of enunciative signification in words or actions is an attempt to assert a truth about reality in order to convey the concepts in one's mind. That is what speech is all about. It's about communicating what's in your mind. Enunciative signification It's a fancy way of saying not just words, but also gestures. So nodding of head, shaking of head, these are, broadly speaking, part of what we're meaning here. Lying is a sin because it violates the purpose of enunciative signification. According to St. Thomas, For as words are naturally signs of intellectual acts, it is unnatural and undue for anyone to signify by words, something that is not in his mind. So that's why lying is wrong. We might more broadly say, you cannot function in society if you are not trusted. We cannot, as a society, function if we do not trust each other. Lying undermines the capacity, therefore, to live in society. Okay, let me run through some things here, and then we can throw out some examples, because that's a good example. Um, So the next point I make here in this section, I say, not every literal falsehood is a lie. So I say, contrary to St. Thomas, but using his methodology, Janet Smith argues that the nature of language is such that Language must serve many other purposes besides the conveyance of the concepts of our minds. We need to correct, console, encourage, deter one another. Thus, jokes may contain literal falsehoods, but in a context such that they do not violate the purpose of communication. Similarly, many common courtesies have contextual and cultural meanings that are implicit few examples there. Saying, I'm fine, in response to the greeting, how are you, signifies virtually nothing and is heard as a generic pleasantry. Yeah, so if I said to Adam, how are you doing? And he says, I'm fine. And then later in the day, I discover he's got some uh, terminal illness and I say, you lied to me. Um, (laughs) But I'd asked him that, Question in the line for the food and the ref, um, it wasn't a context for getting a, a, a real communication. yeah so the context indicates what those words mean. It's a literal falsehood, but it isn't a lie. Yeah, okay, next example, when a statesman or a doctor or a lawyer or a priest, is asked impertinent questions about what he cannot make known without a breach of trust, he simply says, I don't know. And the assertion is true, it receives the special meaning from the position of the speaker. I have no communicable knowledge on this point. So, when I hear something in confession, there's a very real sense in which I do not hear it. So if you ask me, um, who do you think um, stole the rector's cookies? Um, And I know in confession exactly who stole the rector's cookies. Um, I can say, in fact I am required to say because of the seal of the confessional, I don't know. Um, And I don't know, in the sense of having communicable knowledge, The priest who heard the secret, that kind of bit knows. And again, there's statesmen, doctors, lawyers, there's all kinds of categories of people that we know are required to keep secrets. So if I ask them a question, I've got to expect their answer to be within those limits and to not say, later, well, you didn't, I, you knew that the rector who, who stole the rector's cookies and you didn't tell me. Well, you, would, you should know that I can't communicate what I've heard in the confessional, yeah? So it's not a lie, it's that there are certain types of knowledge that may not be communicated and so the meaning of the words has to lie in that context somehow.
8: What if, like, you're outside? Like, right after confession, you're outside of the context of confession, they say, don't tell anybody that I stole the cookies or whatever. Would that be? <laughs> this is <laughs> such a technicality. <laughs> um, could, you, could you say, could you tell somebody, or whatever?
0: It then wouldn't be in, under the seal of the confessional.
8: So, like, but even if they said, they like don't, you would, like, have the ability to, like, reveal it?
0: Um, so you've been told in confidence but not under the seal of the confessional. Yes? Now, just because someone says to you, um, don't tell anyone that I poisoned the rector's coffee. Um, Now, you've told me not to tell anyone, but actually I have a duty to tell, um, and you're asking me to keep it in confidence. Um, The fact you're asking doesn't require me to do what you ask. Slightly different if I start the conversation saying, can I tell you something in confidence? And if I've agreed to that, then I'm kind of bound by it. But even then, there would be a general, um, you know, like therapists have the various criteria where if someone is going to be at risk of life, that transcends uh, doctor-patient confidentiality. So did you have a question? someone had why a hand you up you say I don't know
1: and not just I'm, I'm not
0: going to tell you well I'm not going to tell you indicates that I know and that you just you do know
1: so why wouldn't you just I feel, I feel like I just still fine. because you do you do know but you it's, easy, it's better to communicate that I'm not going to tell you because it
0: was confessed to me and I cannot break the seal of confession by doing that I might cause a st- train reaction of somebody saying, who did you see going talking to Father James today?
6: <laughs>
0: um, that person who never goes to confession was outside the line for confession in the church today. There must have been something unusual he had to say, he must be the one. So the fact I've indicated I know might actually reveal something. Exactly, exactly, yes. So I have, to some extent, at the very least, risked breaking the seal. Um, And a bit like the response, I'm fine, when you ask, how are you, there are some responses that are just kind of generic pleasantries. And we shouldn't expect the truth in all contexts. If we're asking it in a certain context, we need to know what I'm hearing might not be the whole package. This is contrary to what St. Thomas would argue, but this is how Janet Smith, I think, quite convincingly says, there's a broader purpose of what goes on in language. And that there are many phrases that just, in certain contexts, kind of mean nothing. Yeah?
6: Would Aquinas think that a joke that includes a lie is a sin?
0: That's a good question. So you do read some of these medievals who seem to have a problem with jokes, yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, you'd, you'd be, you'd be <laughs> a real
5: um, <laughs>
0: <Greek>. <laughs> now, now we would say, I think, that there are some joking lies that are kind of beyond a joke. Yeah, so that can get carried to an extreme. Um, but yes, uh, so that's why I'm making the point many times a practical joke involves a lie but it is revealed at some stage and that's part of the structure of the joke the the practical joke fails to achieve the joke unless it is then revealed Um, okay next example father's not in right now in response to asking his secretary is father in that's a little more subtle but i think it's what's meant by he's not in is he's not in for you. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um,
0: So then the last bullet point there, quoting Janet Smith, people know very well not to expect the truth in many situations and in fact are not asking for the truth with many of their questions. What you mean by asking his father in is, is he available? Now, if you then push the point, um, so the secretary says no, he's not in. But is he upstairs? And whatever, then the secretary might have to say, you know, that's none of your business. Um, And then get a a bit as you say that say things more directly, but might reveal something. But but there's a general pleasantries that literally are a falsehood. But we. Don't interpret as such because we know that's just how we communicate.
4: But isn't that a statement at variance with the mind?
0: Literally, yes. But the point is, it's not, it has a meaning in society that we all understand. Let's move on because we've got more examples here that will clarify the general picture. Uh, Who here has heard of the phrase a mental reservation? So, the Jesuits were famous for this, this is why everyone hates the Jesuits. Um, Mental reservations. Um, What is a mental reservation? When a phrase is used to mean something other than its literal meaning, then this is called a mental reservation. The meaning of the phrase is reserved to the user, to my mind, and not necessarily communicated to others. So, um, I say, um, that's a very nice shirt you're wearing today, what and <laughs> and what I mean is, um, some people might think that's a nice shirt. Um, <laughs> so. Um, I mean something that I don't communicate. That's a mental reservation. I reserve the meaning to my mind and I say something else. The Jesuits would have a sense, there's a permissible range of doing that and an impermissible range. Uh, I'm gonna continue with explaining this concept before taking questions. So, there's a difference here. A wide mental reservation involves a difference between the literal and contextual meaning of the statement. A strict mental reservation applies a meaning to words determined solely by the mind of the speaker, by no external circumstances or common usage. They were condemned as lies by the Holy See on the 2nd of March 1679. For example, saying no when you mean yes. Did you take my car and I say no But in my mind, when I say no, I mean yes. Um, that's, That's a lie, yeah? But the structure of a mental reservation would say, I keep the meaning in my head, what these words are. I mean, when I say these words, something utterly different from what you think. So the concept of a mental reservation is I can keep... I can reserve a meaning in my mind to some words I say, there is a more complete meaning that I don't communicate to you. It's permissible if common usage makes a coherence in what I'm saying versus reality.
8: Can you give some example?
0: Um,
8: like what would they, like, have I just there? gave it an example well, of like, over the
0: shirt. Uh, a, a better example.
8: Um, <laughs> that just sounds like lying, though.
4: Yeah, how's, how's that different from saying, Father's not in right now? I'm saying <laughs> that right now in my, my mouth, but in my mind, I'm telling you, Father's not in right now for you.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the same thing. Um, I'm not a follower of the theory of mental reservations. Uh, The Jesuits were big on this as a theory. Let me finish this page, and then we can come back with questions and examples. Linked with this is the question of a right to the truth. I say the Catechism quotes St. Thomas, arguing that lying is contrary to the virtue of truth. So the Catechism says, men could not live with one another if there was not mutual confidence that they were being truthful to one another. The virtue of truth gives Another his just due. You have a right to the truth. I have a duty to give it to you. Truthfulness me- keeps to the just mean between what ought to be expressed and what ought to be kept secret. It entails honesty and discretion. In justice, as a matter of honor, one man owes it to another to manifest the truth. Now I go on, I say, it's sometimes alleged that some people don't have a right to the truth, and thus we may lie to them. But common theological opinion does not accept this notion. Going further, I say the first edition, the drafts of the Catechism said, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead into error someone who has a right to know the truth but that second bit, right to know the truth, was removed. This notion was taken out of the final authoritative edition of the Catechism in order to follow more solid theological opinion. Thus the final text reads to lies to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. So in conclusion, I would claim what I would argue is as follows. In some contexts, we do not expect the truth from another and the words we hear from him thus acquire a meaning from that context. For example, the words, I am not guilty, derive a special meaning which they have in the mouth of a prisoner on his trial from the circumstances in which he is placed. It's a true statement of fact whether in reality he be guilty or not. So in court, you plead guilty or not guilty, what that those words mean is how you are entering into the process of defense. It's not a literal statement about whether you did it or didn't. The context gives a specific meaning to those words. Next example. When a torturer seeks information from his prisoner, their conversation lacks the normal context for words to have the type of meaning that would be read into them in other contexts. A man tortured who says, I don't know, would be assumed to actually be saying, I don't know in a sense that I'm willing to tell you. There's not a real conversation going on there. Last example, when a Nazi asks, do you have Jews hidden in your attic? A priest replies no, meaning no, none that I expect none that you can expect me to tell you about. So these are not lies because the words spoken are not statements at variance with the mind. Rather, they are statements whose meaning comes from their particular context. John Paul, can you read the bottom paragraph there? So, Pope Innocent Third. So
5: that the Holy Scripture forbids us to lie even to save a man's life. St. Augustine puts another case which became, became classical in the schools. If a man is hid in your house and his life is sought by murderers and they come and ask you whether he is in the house, you may say that you know where he is but will not tell. You may not deny that he is there.
0: Now, you may not deny he's there, but that doesn't mean you have to say words that are cooperating with them and enabling him to, them to find him. Yeah, I think that would work. Um, last page, um, which is linked with your thing about what is a mental reservation. Okay. So um,
8: what would you say, like, just going back, what would you say in a way that's like, you can tell the truth, but you don't, you don't uh, lie?
0: So the Nazi asks, do you have Jews in your house? and you say something like...
4: I don't
9: say race, man. Or you say... Or,
0: or, <laughs> <laughs> or you say something that's offensive about Judaism. You say, um, Jews kill Jesus, you know. Um, or, um, I hate rich Jews. Or you, you say something that conveys an impression that you wouldn't hide a Jew there. Now, is that deceiving? Yes, but you don't have, there is something of um, a secret, some secrets are supposed to be kept. Um, And I think we can be, say things literally true without revealing a broader truth being sought. it is a bit, so, yes. I think that also Janet Smith's position is, is
5: very fundamentally based on the right to the truth concept. I know that's the way she argued it when she was going up against Father Greg Pine.
0: Yeah. I'm not familiar with that particular it the debate. It the debate. Okay. Um, I think there is some right to truth criteria within this, but it is a risky argument to start your premise with um and i think the catechism very deliberately tried to avoid that as its framing of a definition of a lie okay five minutes on the last page the jesuit defense of equivocation um or why everyone hates the jesuits so I, I note, the following moral analysis led many Protestants, particularly in England, to hold that all Jesuits and thus all Catholics are untrustworthy liars. I say the following moral analysis is also seems extremely dubious by many Catholic scholars. It seems to stand as a clear example of the type of strict mental reservation that the Holy See condemned as lies. Okay, scanning down. In the 16th century context of the interrogation of persecuted English Catholics, The Jesuits taught that equivocation was morally justified. Equivocation means the same word can have multiple meanings. I use it meaning one thing, you hear it meaning thinking something else. John Paul, can you read that quote? So this is from directly um, a Jesuit.
5: say no, though she has seen one, keeping this meaning in her mind, that she did not see any with intent to betray him. A man may swear something that he knows to be false with this intention not to tell them, for no man is bound to answer every man that asks him.
0: That does seem to be the Jesuit saying. You can say the absolute opposite, because what you mean is something else. So, equivocation, a word or a phrase having two meanings. Question put to you, are there any Jesuits hiding in the house? Answer, no. One meaning is understood by the hearer, no, there are no Jesuits hiding in the house. Another meaning is understood by the speaker, no, there are no Jesuits in the house that I am willing to show you. Or, no, there are no Jesuits in the house that you have a right to know about. And implicit in this, we do not... All have a right to know all things. Secrets are meant to be kept. That's moral and is expected by a reasonable question. And questions that ask us to reveal reasonable secrets are unreasonable questions. So how do I respond to an unreasonable question? He's made the whole structuring of our words incoherent. Um, that puts a parameter on the whole thing.
7: Yeah, on this, um, what did they think about the saints that would not deny their faith?
0: Well, a great many of the Jesuits did die for the faith in England. Um, And when push came to shove and they were exposed, were very forthright in proclaiming um, their adherence to the faith. Um, Their point would be that they're not required to divulge that um, all the time. So there are many times when you're keeping a secret defend someone else. So you are a Jesuit priest. If you reveal that you are a priest, you will also cause the death of all the people that were hiding you. Therefore, it's not about saving yourself, you hide the truth to defend them while not denying the truth. Denying the truth is denying Christ is unworthy of him. But we're not required to manifest everything to everyone.
1: So what's the difference between equivocation and Janet Smith's
0: position? I think Janet Smith's position is more rooted in what language means which I find a bit more coherent, rather than saying, well, I can use the word meaning this even though the word normally means something else. She would be saying, no, actually there are many words in social interaction that we just know have multiple possible meanings. And that's what we usually and rightly understand when someone's speaking to them. If I'm asking you a question that has certain consequences when you answer, I know that's going to affect how you phrase the answer. Okay, we've covered a lot. I know, as is always frustrating in this course, we look at some big things very briefly. Um, To repeat my refrain, you will come back to this in greater depth in a later course. So we've looked at theft, how that relates to property, uh, lying um, the the seventh and the eighth command.